Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Shall I tell you the story about Gabe's penis? Uh, yeah. Hello and welcome to Free Exchange. I'm John Ashmore, acting editor of CapEx. Our guest this week is the journalist and author Owen Bennett. Owen has been a member of the parliamentary lobby since 2014, writing for publications such as The Daily Express, Huffington Post and City AM. He was recently appointed Whitehall editor at The Daily Telegraph. In between reporting on the highs and lows of British politics, he's managed to write three books, Following Farage, The Brexit Club and his soon-to-be-released biography of Michael Gove, a man in a hurry. We sat down to talk about Gove's upbringing, his time in the Oxford Union, and those infamous cocaine revelations. Well, Owen, thanks very much for joining us on Free Exchange. Uh, your book about Michael Gove is out. Which date exactly, just for it's our listeners? It's out the 25th. It should be in all good bookshops then. Okay, that's uh, this Friday. Thursday, so, this Thursday. Thursday, sorry, yeah. sorry, off to a flyer there. Um, <laughs> has the subject of the book given you his thoughts on your work at all? Well, there was an interesting moment. So when the uh, leadership contest was going on, all the leadership contenders came through and gave a sort of 20-minute question and answer session to the press gallery, to the lobby, uh, one at a time. And then when Gove came in, um, they were, I asked a question and uh, the Christopher Hope from The Telegraph, who was chairing it, said, brace yourself, everyone. Owen Bennett with a question. And before I could get the question out, Michael Gove said, Owen, I want to say congratulations. And I said, Michael, I couldn't have done it without you. And he laughed. It just kind of dispelled all a little bit, the little bit of tension that there was between us. But he's been absolutely fine. He is a, he's an old hack, as, you know, as, as I detail in the book. He worked in journalism for... You know, number 20, 30 years, he wrote a book himself about a politician, about Michael Portillo. So he is used to this kind of game. So I think he he understands that it's not personal. It's just, you know, the, the, the way that these things have to happen. I think the Portillo one's quite a salutary lesson about writing political biographies. Well, it's funny, I learned two things from Gove's book on Portillo. Um, number one is don't call your book Future of the Right, <laughs> because Portillo then, uh, two years later, lost his seat in Parliament, famously. And the other thing, actually, was that Gove's book about Portillo, the, the, the big thing about Portillo was in 1999, but Gove's book came out in 95. In 1999, Portillo admitted that he'd had homosexual relationships while at university, and this was seen as a big thing for the Tory party to have a leading politician admit this. And also because Go, uh, Portillo's sorry, voting record on equal rights wasn't that strong. So it was seen as a degree of hypocrisy. And lots of questions were asked of Gove. Did you know about this, Michael? We'll not put it in the book because you're such a big fan of Portillo. If you didn't know about it, did you not carry enough research? So I was very 
clear that if I missed a story or found a story I didn't put in the book, like the cocaine story, then I would be accused of making exactly the same mistakes that Gove made about Portillo. So I was trying to learn from Gove there. I'm sure he doesn't really appreciate that irony, but that's what I was trying to do. <laughs> I mean, did you want it to be... Would you have preferred it to be an authorised biography and him to do lots of interviews with you? I mean, what was the process there in terms of putting it to him that you were doing this book? Um, I think it was fine the way it was. So I think even if it had been authorised, some people may not have still wanted to talk to me. There was people who didn't want to talk to me. Nick Bowles, for example, didn't want to talk to me, which was quite frustrating because he'd been friends with Nick Bowles for a number of years. And Nick yeah. was one of the people, actually, who played a big role in moving Michael away from this Thatcherite, tub-thumping guy... Uh, in the late 90s, so actually someone who really got the agenda around modernisation a lot more. That was a big influence of Nick Bowles, and it's a shame I didn't get to hear from Nick directly uh, for that. But, you know, both views present this challenge. If I'd done an authorised biography, maybe I wouldn't have been able to put the cocaine story and maybe would have come to deal with not. And, yeah, I might have had better access to some aspects of his life, but it would have been seen as a bit of a mouthpiece for him. So I was quite happy being slightly outside of it all. How did you feel... In terms of the timing, it's slightly... Do you think it was unfortunate that it happened to coincide with the Tory leadership in the way it did? Or is it just one of them things, as they say? Well, you know, the, the book's coming out Thursday, 25th of July. We got the civilization out in the mail in the beginning of June. So that was our decision. So I, I, I can't sort of sit here and say, oh, isn't it terrible? Because, you know, we decided that the moment of maximum impact for the book was then. And I think we approved, we approved right you know, there is some people who say, well, this book has, you know, it killed Gove's leadership chances and actually what you've done is you've kind of, you know, you've killed your own project. And I kind of disagree with that. I don't think Gove would have become Prime Minister anyway. I think Boris would always, yeah. would always have won. Um, I'm not even sure if we would have got down to the final two. Um, and I think Gove is going to always going to play an important role in political life. You know, he was sat from the cabinet effectively in 2014 and made chief whip. He came back. He was sacked by May after the leadership contest 2016. He came back. So the chances of him, you know, he is a guy who's got great, as Alex Ferguson would say, bounce back ability. So that is what Gove is, is specialises at. So the idea that this book is now completely useless, he says, to any listeners out there considering buying it, I'd say still buy it because Gove is going to play a key role, in, in, particularly in Brexit. I mean, do you see him at any point doing a, a Cameron or an Osborne and just withdrawing from frontline politics? Or do you think he's there for the long haul in a way that they perhaps weren't? I think that the, the motivations of, of those three are very different. And I think that Cameron and Osborne, as Cameron famously said, why do you want to be Prime Minister? Because I think I'll be good at it. If you ask Gove why he wants to be Prime Minister, he will reel off a list of things he wants to change about the country based on personal experience, based on reading experts, which, which you know, he famously derided, but actually he places great stock in, in expertise. So I think Gove is much more focused by aims and goals and solid achievements, whereas Cameron and Osborne were much more focused on a sense of perhaps, I don't know, public service is the right way of putting it. So if Gove was to be tempted away from politics, I think it would have to be for such a job that would enable him to still feel like he was having an impact. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. I mean, what do you see his immediate future? We are recording this the day before the new Prime Minister is announced. I mean, do you think Gove will continue to be a key member of the sort of Team Johnson despite all the past, everything that's gone on between them? It's really tricky, isn't it? I think if Johnson was to win with a huge landslide, right? I think John- Assuming Johnson wins. Assuming Johnson add, wins, yeah. right? <laughs> if he was to win by a huge landslide, 80-20, right? He might feel, actually, I don't need to keep in people in my tent I don't, you know, that have annoyed me, people like Gove. I've got such a mandate for my membership. If it's slightly tighter, if it's 60-40, 65-35, he might think, no, there's got to be unity in the party. And I also think that with the, the arithmetic so tight as it is in the Commons, putting Gove on the back benches, there's another guy that's, you know, he's not bound by collective responsibility and Gove will do his own thing. So pragmatically, I think it makes sense to keep Gove in cabinet. question is then, what do you do? Do you keep him at DEFRA? which I think Gove would probably still relish. I think it is one of the big departments that's going to benefit from Brexit in terms of things you can do. Or do you... I think one thing you could do if you were being Machiavellian in your Boris Johnson, you could say, right, what do we need to do in this country to get people back voting for us? We need to build more houses. Who better to send out and tell all the Tories we've got to build in their lovely Greenbelt land than Michael Gove? So you say, go on, Michael, you take this sticky wicket and you go out and you bow on it. It's interesting you say that because I, I think, looking at me now, he seems quite a different politician to the conflict-for-conflict-sake figure we had, especially at the Department for Education. I mean, you talked about him being a tub-thumping figure in the late 90s. I think, character-wise, there still seems to be some of that in him. But do you think he's changed and morphed a bit and adapted himself to the preoccupations of our age, you know, things like plastics, animal rights and stuff like this? Yes, I think with education, he'd had three years as shadow education secretary before he got into government. So I think he was very, he'd had three years of like building himself up, waiting for the starter pistol to go. So he got in, you know, he pushes through the, the Academies Act in 50 days or something, 60 days. You know, the most transformative piece of legislation for education probably since the 60s. Um, then he had people around him like Dominic Cummings who were very combative. He fed off that style a little bit. But then when he gets to justice and environment... He has to take a slower view on these things. He's not given as much thought. And in the book, you know, there's quotes from people like Friends of the Earth, 
who get phone calls from Go and they spend, you know, not just five minutes, like 15, 20 minutes just saying, well, tell me what you think we should do with the environment. You know, they're really surprised. Like, wow, I did not expect that from Gove. So Gove, I think, has changed as a politician. He's gone from someone who... Um, it used to be, particularly in education, it wasn't enough to win. He had to beat people and they had to know why they were beaten and agree with him and agree that he was right. He, I think he's slightly different now. And what do you think, I mean, coming back to why he's in politics in the first place, what do you think motivates him? Is there a moment in his life, having looked through it all, where you think that's the one that gets him into politics and turns him into this sort of person? I think there's, there's a few moments, right? The, the key one is obviously his adoption. You know, he, was a, he was born... Uh, to a single mother. Uh, he was actually born in Aberdeen. She was in Edinburgh, and he was then taken back to Edinburgh and put into care. And he was adopted by this family, this fishing family, working-class fishing family, working-class, low-middle-class. No one had you know, stayed at school from the age of 15. No one had left Aberdeen. The family tree was all labourers and people who worked in fishing and sort of menial jobs. They saw they had a really smart kid and invested in him and put him to private school. And he benefited from that he realized he could have ended up with a family that didn't do that he got to buy a family that didn't do that that made him work in the you know in, in the fishing industry in Aberdeen so I think he's very very aware that his life could be very different and he's aware that he was lucky to get that chance and therefore he wants everyone to get that chance he wants everyone to have a route to being the justice secretary right to being a, a leader writer for the times being the cabinet minister that's the route that he wants to give everyone so that is a very important motivation the other thing is his father selling the family business in about 1983, 1984 because of the fear of the common fisheries policy. He has an emotional reaction to the European Union, which Boris Johnson doesn't have. A lot of these Brexiteers don't have. He has a real emotional reaction to it. So when people say he's not a real Brexiteer, you know, people like Marc Francois, it baffles me because he's more of a real Brexiteer than a lot of these people. He has an emotional reaction to the point that actually, it, personally, I think it slightly clouds his judgment on the issue. Mm. Perhaps it way that it doesn't. So I think those two things are are key. And then the, then the other moment is actually when he sees the Tories lose in two thousand and one. You know, he had not did they lose? They they didn't even. I think they gained one seat or net zero. Oh, I, I think. think. I think yeah. it was it was even less yeah. than that compared to the Labour landslide. At that point, he suddenly thought, I need to get involved a bit more here because the Tories were just going down the same route again, and they weren't modernising. I think that was a key moment as well. Okay. I mean, uh, and when you're doing your... I mean, what, what was your process in terms of compiling stuff for the book? Obviously, when, when you're writing about someone about whom so much is already known and in the public eye, what kind of... How much deeper do you need to go and where do you look for, for those sorts of sources? Yeah, that was, that was a problem because obviously this is a guy who... You know, if you're writing a book about Sajid Javid, there's a lot to be written about Sajid, right? Because not many people have done it. Gove has lived effectively in the public eye since the 90s. You know, he was a... You know, Aberdeen Press and Journal initially, then he went to the BBC. So there's footage of him for, from a BBC politics show called On the Record back from 92. So, you know, there's a lot of stuff that he's done you can, you, can, you can rely on. So what I was very, very keen on doing with this book was trying to really pull out the themes and pull out a story, pull out a story of what this guy had gone through, where he'd come from. How did this guy who was, you know, born into care become a, take this country out out of the EU, effectively, one day, you know, lead the Brexit referendum. How do you become friends with these, these people like David Cameron? How did... I think that's a really interesting story and one that hadn't been told about anyone in the Notting Hill set. So, I, tr- I, I you know, I, there's not a lot of... You know, obviously, the, the, the big story in there is the cocaine stuff, right? There's not a lot of sex and rock and roll in there. You know, there's... 
There's, there was, I mean, for example, there was lots of speculation about his behaviour at uni. I didn't really get into that because I thought it's not really appropriate. I wanted to really focus on his personality and his and what motivates him and the journey that he'd been on. And that's what I tried to do with the book. And yeah, you talked about uni there. I mean, it's a strange thing in the sense that Gove seems to have had a bit of a plan from a very early age. He was a teenager, like Cameron Osborne <clears throat> Hunt and obviously Boris Johnson, but also definitely a sense that he's not one of them. Is that a fair estimation? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think, you know, if you look at those people, they all sort of got involved. I mean, the, the way that Gove was at uni, he was very, very Oxford Union. His focus was becoming president of the Oxford Union. Um, but he didn't do it on a party political ticket. When he was younger, when he was 15, he was a member of the Labour Party. He was a, he was a Corbynista, right, when he was a kid. He was a Corbynista. And then it all changed. The, the Falklands War had a big impact on him because he saw the strong leadership. And he went to uni and, and he sort of became a Tory. Um, but even so, he was just more about debating. He was more about taking any side of the debate and arguing with it. How far can you go with your rhetoric? He was a, he was a performer, right? He was a performer. He loved performing also Union. He had this skit where he'd turn up looking scruffy and say that... Pepe's Filipino manservant that was off for the day, and that's why, as you can say, scruffy. You know, he was—he saw it as a sort of stand-up comedy kind of thing. Johnson, you know well, of course, being a stand-up yeah. comedian yourself. Uh, um, I don't know if the listeners are aware of that, but um, but yeah. So he—he he was very much, you know, he saw it in that kind of thing. I don't think there was with Gove a kind of. I don't think I've ever thought, right, start from Downing Street and work backwards. What's the, the 10 steps I need to do? Unlike Boris, right? There wasn't the, I want to be Prime Minister when, by the time I'm 50. How yeah. do I need to get there? time famously had his list, didn't he? Right, yes. Become a millionaire, become Prime Minister. Exactly, right. Yeah. So, so I don't think Dave ever really had that. No, that's interesting. So at what point do you think, do, do you think 2001 was the point he thought, right, I'm going to be an MP now, or was it a bit before that? So I think he was th- slightly thinking around before that. But I think what happens in 2001 is uh, Cameron and Osborne get elected. Boris Johnson gets elected. Not only is Boris Johnson elected, he's still editor of The Spectator magazine, right? So Boris Johnson's got this fantastic career going. Gove is a leader writer on The Times. He had a not particularly successful period as Home Affairs editor, Home News editor. It's not done particularly well. It, it sort of becomes obvious around that time... 2001, 2002, that he's not going to be the next editor of the Times. That's given to someone else. So his career, slightly having been on quite an upward trajectory for a long time, starts plateauing. And at that point, he's getting a lot of pressure from Cameron and Osborne, particularly when um, IDS uh, is ousted in 2003, to get on the pitch. Um, Cameron writes a piece for Guardian Online saying, it's time for you to put your expenses count to one side, get on the pitch, and, you know actually start getting involved with Michael and that is really what eggs him on he sees his friends going and doing this and he thinks I want to be with that as well I mean as we said before like a lot of him he's lived in the public eye for so long I mean what if any differences do you think there are between him as a private person and a public person I mean is it easy to tease those out without hanging around with him basically for a long time so my mother is a primary school teacher who hates Michael Gove right and any, you say the name Michael Grove around any teachers and you, you'll get the same response, pretty much. Uh, slightly unfairly, in my view. A lot of people think of Michael Grove, and this was put to him in a hustings as a specky git. When I speak to people who know Michael, people who like him, people who don't like him, people who agree with him, people who don't agree with him, they all say, very funny, very charming, extraordinarily polite. He's the kind of guy 
that if he hears your child is ill, will text you a couple of days later asking how your child was, he is extraordinarily thoughtful. I wanted to call the book actually This Charming Man originally, but the publisher said, well, no one outside of Westminster will get that, which <laughs> is a good point. Then no one outside of Westminster is probably going to read the book. Um, but he is incredibly charming with people. Yeah. That doesn't come across to the wider public. The wider public do not see it's that. Like Ed Balls, isn't it? Yeah. Totally misperceived, I think. And they're saying actually the with Ed Miliband as well. Ed Miliband, yeah. you know, was perceived as this really geeky guy, and he's a geek, leading up to the 2015 general election. But when you met him in real life, he's got a real presence. He's charismatic. He's good looking. He's, you know, he's so different to what the camera showed of him. And Gove does suffer from that as well. Yeah, I think the one, another one that reminds me of is Gordon Brown, who everyone I've known who's met him said he was electric in a room. Yeah, right. But yeah. <laughs> comes across as the most dour man. Yeah. I mean, do you think that's just sort of fear or cause? Portion or the, the nature of modern politics? I think it's a little bit with how he looks. You know, he looks a bit like a nerd. Yeah. Um, you know, as he'll admit. I think that actually there was a... I think he was kind of... slightly happy to play that role a little bit in public. You know, and I think the big thing was that, you know, in 2014, when he was sacked by Cameron from Education Secretary, that was a big moment because... If Cameron had stuck in behind him and said, do you know what, no, I wanted Michael to go and do his education reforms, I backed him this far, okay, they might be getting people saying he's a bit toxic, but I'm going to back him, I'm going to... That maybe. I don't know whether that would change perceptions, but because he was kind of cut adrift, there was a sense that he'd kind of got a big, too big for his boots, there was all this kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, it's a funny... I, I suppose Cameron could claim vindication because they won the election. Yes. And otherwise... You know everything they've done. Uh, you know after after 2014 can be seen in in that context. I mean, how much do you think that hurt him? I mean, is is he someone who people say about Boris Johnson that one of his qualities is he doesn't bear grudges? Do you think Gove is someone who does? I don't think Gove bears grudges, but I think that the point I make in the book is that you know it's Cameron and Osborne are not just born with silver spoons in their mouth; they're born with a social safety net. So Cameron and Osborne can leave the top jobs in government and they're still going to be invited to the same parties, hang around with the same people, right? Gove is in this social world that he's in, which he loves, with the likes of Cameron and Osborne, because he's fought his way in there. Now, if Gove is sacked from the cabinet and cast back benches, those phone calls, they start drying up, right? His invitations start drying up. He hasn't got that social safety net. He's just a boy from Aberdeen. And I do feel like there is a class thing there. You know, Cameron was so disappointed in Go not backing him in the referendum and then going on to be one of the front men in the Vote Leave campaign. He was so disappointed. And I do think there's a class thing. I do think there is a hint from Cameron of, you were working as a waitress in a cocktail bar when I first met you, which isn't true. Go was successful in his own right. But I think Cameron feels that he dragged him up a little bit. It's interesting, though, because Go could probably hit back and say, well, I didn't want to have a referendum in the first place. Yeah, I mean, famously, him and, him and George are the ones who said, don't, I mean, Gove said, do not have this referendum. You know, it, it is not worth it. I'll have to be on a different side of the argument to you, which I don't want to be. It's going to concede things. Gove could see this coming. Now, the thing with Gove is anyone who knows Michael Gove, the idea that Gove was going to back Lee, but be very quiet about it and maybe write a few op-eds... I mean, it's just nonsense. Gove's never done that. Gove's never, ever ducked a fight. Gove, this is a guy who got in an argument with a World War I professor about the merits of Blackadder, right? I'm an education secretary. This is a guy who loves an argument. He will... 
build a road to cross it to start a fight. So the idea that Gove was going to sit out the 2016 referendum out of loyalty to Cameron, when Cameron had not shown him loyalty two years before, of course, mm. was just naive on Cameron's part. And I think that, you know, Gove was always going to play a leading role in that campaign. Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, what do you see without gazing into your crystal ball? Mm. What do you see as next for him? Do you think he would stay around if there was a general election and the Tories lost their majority? Could you see him hanging around on the back benches? Or now he's had the sniff of, not the sniff, now he's had years and years of yeah. being in, in big jobs. Would that seem like such a relegation that he wouldn't bother? I think if, if the Tories in opposition, I think Gove would actually appreciate the intellectual challenge of how to reinvigorate the party. And that's why he's done lots of stuff last summer. He did lots of stuff, you know, with, with you guys and other think tanks about, uh, you know, how do you reinvigorate the party? How do you make capitalism work for a new generation? Trying to bring on new thinkers. So I think Go would actually appreciate, would take to that intellectual challenge quite well and quite quickly and with enthusiasm. Um, I think he'd like to see himself as someone who helped to rebuild the party. I think if... There's you know, a situation where Boris could, if Boris wins, Boris could be Prime Minister for a very short period of time. There's an early general election. Um, who knows if he stays party leader after that? Who knows if Gove has another crack at it? People might all come around and say, Michael, we need you. We just don't know. Yeah, I think um, if the last three years have shown us anything, it's making predictions. Bit of a mugs game. Absolutely. Um, I mean, apart from Michael Gove, you spent, what, 15 months researching him, I think... Probably the politician you know best is Nigel Farage. Is that yeah. fair? Yeah. Um, I should say for listeners, Owen's first book, which I'd recommend reading, um, <laughs> if only for the opening about Dexy's Midnight Runners, <laughs> is uh, following Farage, which he spent, yeah. I don't know, how long was it, about a year? It's a couple of years, yeah. A couple of years, just on, on the coattails of um, the then UKIP leader. Yeah. I mean, what do you make of his sort of transformation into a almost sort of a poster boy of the alt-right, Trump fan, ally, all this. It's strange because, so I followed him, reporting him from sort of 2013 to 2015 to the general election. So it was just when they did wear in the local election results in 2013. So it was when you get really started taking off and everyone was like, we've got to take this guy seriously. Uh, cars well defected, records defected. And at the time, they were desperately not trying to be alt-right, actually. They were desperately trying to paint themselves out as just, you know, sensible people of this country. With the exception of Raheem Kassam, who was a guy who was Gove's sort of chief advisor. And he was the Farage's. guy... <laughs> Sorry, Farage, beg your pardon. We're Gove down. Sorry, Gove down. Yeah. Farage's chief advisor, who um, worked for Breitbart, had, had links with America, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, he, and he thought that you should adopt this kind of Trumpian-style politics before Trump... And Farage did do a little bit of that, hence the comments about people with HIV shouldn't come over here and that kind of stuff, which yeah. actually turned a lot of people off. But then he fully, go, uh, Farage, sorry, sort of fully embraced that after the 2015 uh, election, leading up to the 2016 referendum. And if people say, well, what would Farage do outside politics? We saw it. He was on Fox News all the time. Yeah. You know, the guy was talking down Britain, as far as I was concerned, a lot. And he's sort of trying to come back a bit more now into the mainstream of British politics. Very, trying very hard to separate, separate himself out from Tommy Robinson, one of the precursors for him leaving UKIP. So he's sort of trying to come back into the mainstream a little bit. But what he's, the difference now is that when he was UKIP leader, you could dig up some councillor from, you know, slowly on the world and say they said this awful thing and have to defend it. Now he hasn't got to do that. Now he's just got, you know, just got MEPs to talk about. He hasn't got any of that nonsense as he saw it of, of actual party behind him in a way like UKIP and Gerald Batten made it easier for him by being so extreme exactly exactly exactly, say, exactly. Well, look at me I'm alright compared to them it's exactly what happened and, and you know Farage kind of got out with his nose 
keen on that, but I think Farage probably has to look at the way that, that party was so engulfed by that by that thought, and I think that Farage does have a responsibility um, for that. I mean, I've interviewed Farage a couple of times. I wouldn't claim to know him anywhere near as well as you. Um, but what struck me is that actually his public persona of being a sort of chummy boozer is exactly what he's actually like exactly. in people, private. Exactly. People always say, what's Farage really like? He is really like that. The only difference is that Farage would prefer a glass of red wine to a pint of ale. He was pictured drinking a pint of ale at one point, and it did really well. So he, I mean, he likes ale, but he, he actually prefers red wine, but he kind of keeps that a bit of a secret. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't really touch the sides with him either. No, I mean, the guy can drink. The guy can... I interviewed him for Falling Farage, and I said to him, do you think you're an alcoholic? And he thought about it, and he said no. But I think he, 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 his tolerance for alcohol is extremely high. Yeah. I mean, he can, he can drink throughout the day and give the same speech in the evening that he gave in the morning with the same intonations and humour. It's a fantastic public speaker. I mean, and what Farage did, which I think he deserves a lot of credit for, is he went to places where politicians weren't going because they either thought they couldn't win there or they thought they were definitely going to win there so they don't need to go and actually warm these places up. Farage went into those places and he held meetings in rooms and halls and pubs and he walked around the streets and he spoke to people. And he, it was a real kick up the backside for a lot of politicians in this country. Uh, yeah, the other thing that always struck me about him, again, both sort of on, on telly, but also in, especially in person, is how he just seemed knackered a lot of the time. And when he went off and started doing Fox News, I thought, right, he might just stick at that now. Because the life he, held, he led before was so demanding, being a one-man party effectively. I mean, how surprised were you when he came back into frontline politics? Not surprised at all, because he loves the adrenaline of it. He yeah. loves being front and centre. He loves causing trouble. And he really believes in Brexit, right? He really, really believes in it. Um, he really, you know, he, he does believe in it. So I think he feels it's not being delivered. Now, the question is, if Brexit had been delivered on March 29th, what would Farage have done then? Would he have found a new issue to line himself to? And I think he would have done. One of the things he says to me in, in the book is that he in following Farage at the end, is that he thought the next big battle would be um, basically over gated communities, right? A load of people that are very rich can afford to put gates up and lock the poor out, and he thought that was going to be a, a big thing. And it hasn't quite materialised yet, but I think he's probably kind of onto something there. Yeah, it's quite noticing from the Brexit party is that actually they don't mention the EU all that much for a party called the Brexit party. Yeah, I mean, the, the, thing that I, the conclusion that I drew from speaking to a lot of UKIP voters and people who became UKIP voters during that period was what united them was not necessarily a disliking of the EU, although obviously it did. It was actually a sense of a lack of patriotism from the people who ran the country, a sense of a bit of a shame about the country, a bit of shame about the Union Jack. And if you cast your mind back to, the, you know, to 1997 with Tony Blair, what did Tony Blair do? He wrapped himself in the Union Jack Call Britannia, Union Jack flags waving when, you know, when he became Prime Minister. You know, Noel Gallagher with his Union Jack attire. It was, a, it was a really patriotic time. And that kind of had all, to a lot of UK people, had kind of all disappeared. And there was a sense we were slightly embarrassed about who we were in the world, which is why I think Corbyn doesn't do well with the working classes in this country. And you can see it from the last election results. is because there is a sense that he just is not patriotic enough. Yeah, and I think also, I mean, with Corbyn, his preoccupations are just not the same as no. a lot of ordinary people. Exactly. Like they don't give a shit about Iran or Venezuela or any no, of that stuff. Exactly, yeah. and, and their default position is to, you know, is to be on the side of the, of, the, of the British, and people question whether Corbyn's default position is to be that. And you only have to look at over the Scripple poisonings. 
Yes, indeed. Or I mean, any any press release, Seamus Milne craft seems to be have the same formula. <laughs> indeed, restraint in, on all sides. Restraint on all sides. It's America's mm. fault. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just coming back to the Brexit party. I mean, with your sort of an analyst hat on, do you think that a Brexit of some description will kind of kill them off, or is Farage right when he says this is just the beginning, and actually this is about normal people against the elite? I mean, Ken Clark had that great phrase, didn't he? You know, if you keep feeding the crocodiles, they'll keep coming to the end of your boat or something on this phrase about the right about Eurosceptics. And I think that's right. I, I don't think Brexit kills them off because if you've created a narrative, which is what the Brexiteers have successfully done, that this form of Brexit isn't true Brexit, you can keep that going forever. You know, the reason you know, I thought it was really funny when the Mays deal was put forward, and people like Jacob Rees-Mogg were going on television saying this isn't Brexit. And then polling was coming out, people saying, it's not Brexit. Going, look, people don't think it's Brexit. Yeah, because you've been telling them it's not Brexit for the past two weeks. Of course they're going to listen to you. And I think that is, that is, you know, what the kind of Nigel Farage modus operandi is just to completely, you know. And then, and then we have Brexit, and then guess what? The, the trade deal with the US isn't done properly, or the trade deal with so-and-so isn't done properly, or the new immigration laws aren't done properly. So there's always going to be something. Brexit is not a, a one-day event. That's the kind of beauty of the post-truth politics era is you can just say something hasn't worked however it yes. goes. Yeah, exactly. And he's cottoned onto that in a way. Exactly. Do you think there's also a kind of corollary risk, though, that if we, go, we do go for no deal, things don't go so well, and they then are the ones who get the blame? Or again, is it just, no, it's the government, they didn't do it properly? Yeah, I think it's, I think yeah. it's then because they didn't prepare properly. Well, we yeah. would have got no deal if only we'd come out earlier or later, or it's all Philip Hammond's fault for not preparing. You know, it'll, it'll all be that. There'll always be, you know, the, the, this style of politics is always about pushing the blame onto someone else, not taking responsibility, in, in my opinion. And that's, you know, that's one of the sad things about someone like Farage, because I've got a lot of respect for Nigel Farage for a lot of things that he's done. But there's some things that he does, I just think, I'm not, I'm not sure about it. And just to finish off, I mean, what do you think, having been a lobby reporter for some time now, what do you think the press's responsibility is or in all this to, you know, because you've always got to draw that line between something that you know is going to get tons of hits if you, yeah. if you dress it up in a certain way and kind of probity. I think that the, the, the Westminster lobby in particular is one of the, one of the institutions that's not even tried to learn from Brexit, actually. I think a lot of institutions have thought we got Brexit so wrong, why, and tried to look at itself. I don't think the, I don't think the press has really, th- really considered that yet. Um, but we're in a difficult situation. If a politician says something that we know to be wrong, do we have a duty to report that because a politician has said it and then add the caveat that it's wrong? Do we have the duty not to report it because it's wrong and therefore we shouldn't report wrong things? You know, I think that's a conversation that we all... I, I, I don't really know the answer to it. I mean, the famous example, of course, in the UK is, is the, the, you know, the big red bus in the, the referendum. You know, vote leaves themselves said they, they loved the fact that the 350 figure was controversial because it meant every night Laura Kunzberg was on the news going, this figure here is controversial. And everyone's going, God, that's a lot of money going to the EU. And it just kept the story going. So what do you do? Do you just not cover the bus because it's like we think it's wrong? Or how do you do that? So... I think the press is in a very difficult situation. I think that, for example, things like the Boris Johnson with the kipper he held up the other day, his rally, I think people were pretty quick to point out that that wasn't as he was phrasing it. Yeah, I think... Um, but as you say, I mean, there's a problem of it kind of... 
if you're on one side, it'll just feed into your preconceptions or whatever. Yeah. So you see a lot of stuff on The Guardian and The Independent about how actually the Isle of Man isn't in the EU. Yeah. Whereas other, other papers might just ignore it. Yeah. So selection is really as much of a thing as the angle that you choose. Yeah. And I think actually that there is, you know, it's very easy to decry the sort of rights of this country, but I think the left have got to take some responsibility as well for some of the things, some of the left-leaning media, because, you know, they're, they're lazy. Some of the people, things people write in the left-leaning press really annoys me because it's lazy. Or, the, or, you know, there's plenty of, there's, I remember this very clearly writing on, reporting on UKIP. There was plenty of things in UKIP you could legitimately criticise them for, legitimately, right? Criticising UKIP for the fact that a councillor somewhere, a parish councillor somewhere, said that the reason why we've had floods is because we legalised gay marriage and that's God's revenge, right? This guy had been a Tory council until three or six months earlier. The fact that you keep, we kept bringing that up as a press to beat Farage with, I think people see through that and go, well, is that it? There's loads of stuff you could have had a go at you about. Why are we picking on that? It just seemed really, really odd to me. As if, ah, we've got you, we've got you because someone that you've never met has said something crazy. And I think that then people look at that, and I think there is, and I don't want to get you know, too far into a Robinson thing, but they look at things like the reporting on much more serious things in this country, like child grooming gangs, which gets nowhere near enough, or wasn't getting anywhere near enough coverage. And I think people then look at it and go, well, what's, what, what's going on here? On that extremely happy note... I know, sorry about that, that was, a bit, that was a bit dull, wasn't it? Do you want <laughs> to go back, do you want me to tell you some, some saucy stuff about Gove, or is that all right? Yeah, yeah, go on then. Shall I tell you the story about Gove's penis? Uh, yeah. Is that, is that too that blue That sounds a lovely this? way to end things. Go so, uh, Michael Gove, uh, there was a... Oh, I think I know about this. There was so a photograph yeah. taken to mark the millennium at the Times, taken in December 1999 in a car park uh, outside the Times HQ. And Gove was heard to say, can you hurry up and take this picture? It's so cold, my cock has shrunk to my knee. Goodness. All right? Yeah. Bit of blue? Yeah. It's a little bit blue. <laughs> Thanks so much You're speechless, aren't you? You're speechless. That enduring image. <laughs> When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.